This is The Guardian. Today, the human cost of a ground invasion in Gaza. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Afafal Najjar is in her early 20s. She's a student who also works in marketing and she's lived in Gaza all her life. She was staying in a hotel when she first heard the news that she, and over a million other people, were being ordered by the Israeli military to evacuate Gaza City within 24 hours. Uh, we received messages, we received calls, and, and there were always also uh, paper posts that uh, were thrown from the side telling us to evacuate from Gaza City and the north of the Gaza Strip. She and her family had already been forced to leave their home earlier in the week. Their neighbourhood had been targeted by bombs before. The family didn't take much with them, just their phones, IDs, passports and a few clothes. Afaf took a photo of a room before she left, her nail polish organised neatly on top of the dresser, her kindergarten certificate in front of the mirror, her engagement dress hanging from the wardrobe. Uh, and then we had to wait for about three hours as well to uh, to find a cab that would take us to the south of Gaza because the roads were extremely dangerous. All the way, when we were in the car, I was thinking of this. I was, I was like, oh my God, they're going to bomb us. Oh my God, we're going to be attacked. Oh my God, there's going to be an airstrike. Um, and all the way, I was just praying for, for uh, us to arrive safely to the place we were going to. They arrived in Gaza's southern city, Khan Yunus, by the evening. Afaf's grandfather lives there, and with her aunt and uncle's families, they all crowded together in his house. Uh, there is no electricity at the, the house right now, uh, but uh, we use a, a battery, we charge a battery when there is electricity so that we have Wi-Fi connection uh, when there is no electricity. Israeli airstrikes have already killed over 3,000 Palestinians in Gaza since Hamas attacked Israel on October the 7th. Last night, a hospital in Gaza City was hit. Israeli authorities denied they were behind the bombing, but hundreds of people are feared dead. And because Israel has blocked anything from going in or out, ordinary Gazans now have very little access to basic necessities like food, water, or electricity. So that's, that's the situation right now. Uh, we had water yesterday, but uh, there's no motor in our, in our sinks anymore today. So the, the situation is only getting worse. It's not getting any better. As the Israeli military prepares for a ground invasion of Gaza, people trying to find safety from the violence have no idea what to expect. And they have nowhere else to go. There is no news of uh, the, the Rafah crossing border opening. There is no news of a ceasefire. There is no news of, of an end to this. Really, no one knows what's going to happen. No one knows when we are going to, to, 
to be killed by the airstrikes, uh, I feel like my death is just put on hold. I feel like I'm dead, but my death is put on hold or it's paused uh, for when the airstrikes are going to, to come for me. From The Guardian, I'm Nasheen Iqbal. Today in Focus, what would Israel's plans for a ground invasion of Gaza look like? And what would it achieve? Peter Bowman, you're a senior international reporter for The Guardian and The Observer and the paper's former Jerusalem correspondent. Can you tell me what Israeli politicians and military leaders have said so far about what they hope to achieve in Gaza? I mean, the the rhetoric in Israel has been pretty fierce. There's been sort of discussions, statements about flattening Gaza, destroying Hamas, wiping it off the face of the earth. I think what one has to bear in mind is that a lot of this is aimed at the Israeli public who are absolutely angry about what happened with the, with the massacre in southern Israel. And the, the reality is going to be something different. For instance, in regards of the possibility of full occupation and administering Gaza again, which I don't think is on the cards. So, I mean, we have to balance sort of the reality of the situation with rhetoric that is emotionally and politically driven. Nonetheless, the last few days have been dominated by that escalating rhetoric, by, you know, the threat of Israeli armed forces mounting a ground invasion in Gaza. It seems a terrifying escalation of this war. It hasn't happened yet. President Joe Biden is urging restraint and he is currently in Tel Aviv himself. Peter, how much difference do you think his presence will make? I think the Israelis will go in. I think there will be a ground invasion. The things that are going to tie Israel's hands are the demands by people like its biggest ally, the United States and other European allies, that there should be cognizance and caution around civilian casualties. Hamas and the extreme elements of Hamas don't represent all the Palestinian people. And uh, it would be a mistake to, uh, for Israel to occupy Gaza again. We did, but to going in and taking out... I think there would be people saying to Israel that, that you know their aims have to be realistic. And I think actually the Israelis will understand that their aims have to be realistic. I mean, well, I think they have the military capacity to go in and invade Gaza fully, I mean, to go into the cities. I think there's long been a, an appreciation that, that even though some on the far right of Israeli politics have called for a full reoccupation, that there is neither the will nor the capacity to go in and, and reoccupy and administer such a large place. You've talked about the military capacity there, but what have the Israelis done to prepare for this? One of the misunderstandings about the Netanyahu years is that he's actually quite risk-averse uh, militarily. I mean, he's presided over various very bloody small incursions and campaigns, particularly around Gaza. But I mean, in terms of like larger wars, he's actually been quite risk-averse, and that's his reputation in Israel. In terms of what we're seeing now, we're seeing a very large call-up of reserves, I mean, over 300,000. I mean, some of that will be to deploy forces on 
you know, in Israel's north against the possibility of an escalation from Hezbollah and southern Lebanon. But still, in terms of the number of troops that have been called up, it's a very, very large number. And we're seeing a large amount of military traffic, tanks and other other armoured vehicles being brought down to the places on the Gaza border boundary where they're typically placed before a major incursion. So we are seeing preparations for a large campaign. It wouldn't be the first time that the Israeli military has gone into Gaza, but what makes this operation different and how long are they expected to be there? I think what makes it different is that this time there is a sense that anything short of a conflict that doesn't try to to remove Hamas's grip on Gaza will not be acceptable to the Israeli public. So, I mean, the conversation at the moment is very much around how does the Israeli military essentially de-Hamasify, if you'd like to put it, Gaza? Now, you know, that's a very big question. Does that simply mean that they go in and they engage and destroy the, the Qassam Brigades, Hamas's military wing? Or does it mean something different? Mm. I mean, they employ something like 40,000 civil servants in Gaza, teachers, doctors, people who run the healthcare system. So I think this will probably be aimed primarily at the sort of Hamas leadership and the, the Qassam Brigades. Peter, the last time you spoke to us, you said that the initial attack orchestrated by Hamas may have been to pull Israel into this ground invasion. If that's the case, what do we know about how prepared Hamas is and what this next stage of conflict will look like? I mean, Hamas has been training for this for 15, 16 years and getting better and better at this in every round of fighting with Israel. I mean, they've done an awful lot of military engineering in terms of building sort of tunnels and communication systems. One of the things we've seen in previous conflicts, particularly in 2014, is that Hamas has its ideas about how it will fight Israel. It's been learning how Israel fights, and it's been learning how to respond to that. It has anti-tank guided missiles. It has anti-tank mines. And you know, even though it will be a much smaller force and much more lightly armed, I mean, as soon as you get into the the urban areas of Gaza, I mean, that that becomes something of a leveller because it's typically said that there is a sort of three to one advantage for defenders against attackers. And that's what they will be hoping. Right, really, even despite the disparity of the number of forces? Yes, I think so. Because, you know, I mean, I don't have any doubts if Israel has the appetite and the will to take the kind of casualties it will need to defeat Hamas. But I think I think that's the question is that, you know, will it have the appetite to, to take the kind of potentially heavy casualties that it might need to to kind of fight through places like the north of Gaza City, through Shajaya, through all these places where Israel has has actually had its fingers burnt before. I mean, Hamas knows where Israel will come through. It, it has an idea of Oh, of how it will try to do it. And it will try to place its forces to cause maximum damage. And is there any sense from either side of how long that maximum damage will go on for? Like how long would this ground invasion expected to be taking place? 
I don't know is the simple answer. I mean, the, the difference between Hamas and Israel Defense Forces is the the IDF and Israeli society puts an awful lot of value on life. It does not want to lose a lot of its soldiers. You know, Hamas on the other side of the argument has a much more fatalistic approach to fighting. It celebrates its dead and always has done. And that is going to be a conflict of outlooks, psychological outlooks towards fighting and and casualties. Given what you've just said about the premium on life that Israel holds, we know that there are at least 199 hostages said to be trapped in Gaza. On Monday night, a video was released of a French-Israeli hostage asking to be returned to a family. Hamas say that they've captured enough people to negotiate the release of 6,000 Palestinians detained in Israel. Peter, is rescuing those Israeli hostages one of the objectives of this ground invasion? I think sort of attempts to rescue hostages where they know they are will be baked into the thinking of how they conduct the operation. I'm not convinced it will necessarily be a limiting factor. I think there is a very, very strong sense that a absolute red line was crossed. And I, I suspect that will come down on, on the balance, ultimately, of pursuing a campaign that is more about removing the threat and more about deterring other attacks of this kind, while trying their best to try and save as many of the hostages as possible. There's been this rather chilling phrase that's been used for sort of previous rounds of fighting. I mean, the Israelis talk about mowing the grass. And what that means is that, that you have an operation that goes in, that, that it, you know, its main aim is to, to degrade, to degrade the threat that, that they're facing. And I suspect that the weight of that consideration will be to, to be to try and remove Hamas's ability to do it again. And I think that is a rather cold calculation. And in the meantime, the aerial bombardment by Israel means that the United Nations have said that there already aren't enough body bags in Gaza. Israel has told around 1.1 million civilians in northern Gaza to leave. Hamas has told them to stay. Undoubtedly, the fighting is going to be devastating for civilians caught in the middle. But Peter, do we know how many people are still there and why? And the estimate I saw this morning of, of the civilians still left in Gaza City is, is about 100,000. I mean, you know, most of the people I know who've moved, you know, people I know in Gaza, people my wife knows, you know, most of those people have left because they don't have homes anymore. They live in areas that have been quite heavily bombed already. I mean, other people whose houses have not been destroyed have decided that it it's safer to try and go south. I mean, I'm not sure what people are going to find in the south. Places like Khan Yunus and Rafa and, and the south are already going to be very overcrowded with people who've moved from more outlying villages and towns towards the centre. And and now you have this kind of huge pressure of people coming from the north of the Gaza Strip to an area that's already going to be struggling to cope with its own refugees. So it's going to be very, very difficult. The Israeli army ordered everyone to leave northern Gaza. But it was an impossible demand, especially for people with life-threatening injuries or illnesses cramped in Gaza City's overflowing hospitals. 
the internet is so awful i you know i can't let's try to talk but otherwise if you want throughout the past week we've been speaking with dr hassan abu sitha a british palestinian plastic surgeon working in gaza city he first heard about the israeli army's evacuation order while he was in the middle of a shift at a hospital in northern gaza after surgery i went to see the director of the hospital to discuss what the plan is for the next day while i was there uh, suddenly his face uh, he was on the phone and his face really became ashen it soon became obvious that the people on the phone were the israeli army and they were basically ordering him to evacuate the hospital he was trying to argue that the hospital is full of patients many of them are critically injured and he can't easily uh, evacuate he was then told they did the best they could helping wounded people into ambulances and sending them out to different hospitals around Gaza City. And I hitched a ride with the um, uh, ambulance that was taking one of the uh, patients to Shifa Hospital. Um, The drive from northern Gaza to Shifa, which is in Gaza City, is harrowing. It's pitch black. There is destroyed buildings along the way. And what's devastating is when you pass by a destroyed building, there's the stench of decaying bodies from underneath. It's horrendous. My experience as a doctor, I've never seen anything like this. I've been in Mosul and I've been in Yemen and I've been in Damascus and this is worse. The the number of kids because they're targeting homes, the kids are being injured. Around 40% are wounded children. The hospital is so overwhelmed with the numbers. There's over 170 patients waiting to go to surgery who need surgery. And we're starting to see wounds becoming infected because of the delay in getting them to the operating rooms. The hospital crowding situation it means that there's an impending public health catastrophe in the form of cholera or typhus, unless something is done. Dr. Gusson and his colleagues have been doing their best to cope with this nightmare. But it gets worse every day. There's barely any water or electricity because Israel has cut off both utilities. Fuel for the hospital generators is running low. So are basic medical supplies. Doctors are sleeping on sofas in the hospital for three or four hours a night, working under constant aerial bombardment. Today we discovered that one of our colleagues was killed when his house was targeted by the Israelis and levelled. He had most of his siblings and their kids staying with him too, and there's over 30 of them who've been killed. His name is uh, Midhat Saydam. He was a lovely, lovely man, and he was part of a training program in plastic surgery that the British charity Medical Aid for Palestinians was running to try to prepare them for a day like this, unfortunately. Last night, after hundreds were killed in a hospital in Gaza City, Ghassan rushed to the scene to try and help out. Despite all of this horror, he told us that many Gazans won't leave the north. Either because they can't, they literally have nowhere to go, or because they just refuse to. In 1948, after the creation of the State of Israel, more than 700,000 Palestinians were forced from their homes by Israeli troops and militia groups. Most of them never came back. Now, Palestinians fear that what Israel is doing could lead to another mass displacement. 
people refused to leave. The trauma of 1948 dispossession and the humiliation of becoming a refugee is very much part of what makes Palestinian identity. People will not become refugees again. Um, people will not leave Gaza. And so I will not leave. I will leave once there's a ceasefire. I came here knowing what was awaiting me. It turned out to be much worse than I thought, but that doesn't mean that I came here not knowing. And I will um, be here for the duration. Coming up, can a ground invasion really destroy Hamas? Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Peter, we've been hearing from people like Dr. Ghassan who are working in incredibly difficult circumstances and don't want to leave people behind. You also talked about the other reasons some people have for not leaving. This situation just seems utterly dire. Is there any chance that civilians could be kept safe? It's a difficult question to answer. In 2014, I was in Gaza for a month. It's difficult to give a sense of how random it can seem. And clearly, that was a less intense conflict than this one is going to be. Every time you'd leave to try and visit somewhere, you'd feel that there was a risk of something coming out of the blue. And often it did. I remember visiting a place I thought had just been struck by a missile. And 
as we were driving by and to kind of stop and do some reporting without realizing that it was one of these knock on the roof things where they hit it with a missile with not very much explosives in to get people to leave the building. Of course, we're walking towards it when it gets struck by a proper missile. And that's what guards us like during wartime. Another occasion, I remember coming out of a hospital in the north, and as we were coming out of the entrance, a mortar exploded sort of about 30 or 40 metres away. And that's what it's going to be like. So my answer would be, no, there is no guarantee of safety. It's a small place in the midst of a very intense conflict, and there will be a lot of very random life-threatening events for people who stay. Well, Peter, the Israeli president, Isaac Herzog, has said that Gazans are complicit with Hamas. It's an entire nation out there that is responsible. It's not true. This rhetoric about civilians not aware, not involved, it's absolutely not true. They could have risen up. They could have fought against that evil regime, which took over Gaza in a coup d'etat. But we're at war. The Israeli line has been that Hamas doesn't care how many Gazan civilians die. And of course, it is worth remembering that almost half of all Gazans, one million of the population, are children. What do you make of that rhetoric? This is an argument that comes up repeatedly, this notion that somehow the Palestinians in Gaza should have done something about Hamas in the past because they haven't risen up against Hamas somehow. It's their fault. I think it's worth remembering what the history of this is. And after Hamas's takeover of Gaza in 2007, one of the first things that they did was they removed weapons both from their rivals in Fatah, but also other families, other clans that held weapons in Gaza. So there was a widespread disarming of Gaza so that Hamas had a monopoly on violence. So this notion that people could simply turn against Hamas is something of a nonsense. The second question is, how do you deal with a notion of group culpability? It's a Nuremberg question, ultimately. And I think it's a crude answer to simply say, well, look, all these people have worked for Hamas. They say they'd support Hamas. Some of them voted for Hamas. Therefore, it's all their fault. I think there needs to be sort of a disambiguation of what the different bits of Hamas are. Is it the Politburo and the political leadership? Is it the Qassam brigades? Is it the guy who's a Hamas policeman who's probably only got his job because he comes from a Hamas family? And Is it the school teacher? Mm. And I think as soon as you start making these big judgments of, well, all these people are Hamas, all these people are culpable, then that leads to the sort of dangerous logic that the United States followed in Iraq. If you remember after the US invasion, there was a decision taken that they would essentially remove all the officials and supporters of Saddam Hussein from his Socialist Ba'ath Party. They would be excluded, and that's what happened. But the consequence of that was it created a huge well of discontent and antagonism towards US occupying forces. But that line of thinking does prevail, doesn't it? And it's why we're now in a situation where Israel has declared it will turn Gaza into a city of tents. It claims that a military campaign will wipe Hamas out. Peter, how realistic is that? And will Israel want to reoccupy that territory? 
I think in terms of reoccupation, I don't sense any appetite at all to be in charge of administering and providing civil services for 2 million Palestinians in Gaza and all the problems that would bring, especially in a place that has been very, very heavily destroyed. I don't sense an appetite for that. So that suggests to me strongly that what we're talking about is a war to destroy Hamas's military capacity to as high a degree as possible, not just mowing the grass, as we've talked about before, but effectively to defeat Hamas. But what does that actually mean? What does eradicating Hamas actually look like? And is it even possible? Because it's not just about bodies, it's about an idea, right? I mean, Hamas is not just located in Gaza. I mean, it's also located in the West Bank. It has offices in other countries. It has extraterritorial links. So you defeat the Qassam brigades in the battle, you decapitate the Hamas Politburo. But does that mean that it's gone as an idea? I mean, ultimately, that leads you to the question of whether this ends up just being an even more comprehensive mowing of the grass than before, even if victory is declared, even if X percent of the Qassam brigades are killed and captured. Peter, what about the influence and the role of Israel's allies, its enemies, its neighbours? What will that have in this conflict? I think it's difficult to make a judgment, but my sense at the moment is that both Iran and Hezbollah are probably doing the minimum that they have to do to give a sense of allyship with Hamas. But that is designed from their own point of view to try and limit Israel's military ambitions. I think from the point of view of friends and allies of Israel, I think there is a genuine horror of the prospect of what could unfold in this conflict. I think that countries like the UK, United States and the EU are keen to be supporting Israel, but without buying into potential for large civilian casualties. And I think that's probably why we're seeing so much frantic American diplomacy going on at the moment. There is an anxiety to say, both we stand with you, but also to say, but there are limits to that support. Hmm. What are the long-term political aims? What is the vision for Gaza post-ground invasion, if it happens? Given that in terms of infrastructure, Gaza was already struggling to home 2 million people and Israel already had control over its water, food, energy supplies and so on. I think it's fair to say that there hasn't been a vision for Gaza in the last 16 years since the Hamas takeover. I mean, it's always been about trying to mitigate the worst impacts of the blockade. It's always been about trying to mitigate the worst impacts of conflict. It's always been trying to push towards marginal improvements in people's living conditions until that reality is tackled, that these are a large number of people who are cut off from the world, who are cut off from opportunities, who are cut off from the chance of living their lives as fully as they can, then there is no possibility for any kind of future for anyone in Gaza. It's just so relentlessly bleak. And given everything you said, it sounds so different from the analogies that are being made because, you know, a lot of people in the last week have made comparisons with the Hamas attack and the Israeli response to it as being reminiscent of 9-11, which, Peter, you also covered events then. What do you make of that comparison? 
9-11 is a reasonable metaphor in one sense, because I think what it does describe was the utter sense of shock, the utter crisis of confidence, the self-questioning that happened after 9-11. We're still at the moment of people trying to understand not only what happened and why it happened, but I think also their own responses to it. That is where the differences emerge, is that when I speak to Israeli friends, to Jewish friends internationally, there isn't an absolute boilerplate response in terms of everyone saying the same thing and feeling the same ways, and people feel differently about it. And I suspect that those emotional responses will shake out more in the weeks and months and years to come. Peter, Gaza is a place that has been built and rebuilt so many times over the last few decades. What will it mean for ordinary Palestinians to see their city turn into an active war zone yet again? You know, you talk to people, and some of the people I know are quite cool cucumbers, if you want to put it that way. I mean, they've seen it all before. They've lived through occupation. They've lived through the anarchy that preceded the Hamas takeover. They've lived under Hamas. They've lived through the various conflicts. The thing that you hear from people now is that they feel they don't have a future. They're frightened in a way that I haven't known people be frightened before. And they feel that what they're facing at the moment is something so terrible that they can't think beyond it. And that, for me, is novel in the sense that they feel like they're looking into an abyss that has eradicated all possibility of hope. And I think looking forward, that will have a consequence. It's very bleak, but part of what we need to understand is what the consequence of this bleakness is. Peter, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. That was Peter Beaumont, Senior International Reporter for The Guardian and The Observer. My thanks to him and especially to Afaf Al-Najjar and Dr. Ghassan Abu Sitta for speaking to us. To read more on this story and understand its development, do follow the live blog on the homepage at theguardian.com. That's it today. I'm Nasheen Iqbal, and this episode was produced by Alex Atak, Courtney Youssef, and Tom Glasser. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Huma Khalili. We'll see you again tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.